Today on the Orthodox Ethos Podcast, we present Lesson 2 from our lecture series on Russia's New Martyrs and the Catacomb Church. The topic of today's lesson is The Onslaught of Persecution and Resistance Under St. Tikhon. This podcast was originally recorded in June of 2021. Thank you for joining us and God bless you. to our series on the Russian New Martyrs. Very glad to have you. God bless and asking your prayers as we begin the second lecture, which will be dealing with the onslaught of persecution and the witness and the resistance under our great confessor and patriarch, St. Tikhon, Patriarch of Moscow. So this is our second of ten. Let's get into it. Let's say our prayers and begin uh, this will be a very uh, instructive and interesting session because here we're dealing now with the uh, onslaught, the, <clears throat> the, the eruption of power in the hands of these bloodthirsty, um, uh, just an unbelievable group of, of human beings who have no respect and no, no regard for human life or uh, the rule of all, law or anything. So we're going to try to enter into what they were dealing with, what they were living with. We've heard about the Russian Revolution. We've read a little bit here and there, perhaps, most of us. Um, but I, most of us, <laughs> growing up in the West, we have a very superficial and distorted view, probably, of what, what happened in Russia, what they went through, the church there, the persecution, the crucifixion. And the distortion of public and uh, religious life. So hopefully, this series and this tonight, this lecture will help us to enter in more deeply, step by step, what they uh, encountered, what they dealt with, and, and and also prepare us for whatever might be heading our way, as we see the same spirit. In many ways, the same spirit of anarchy and atheism. Uh, perhaps even more deceptive today, more brutal in that day, but more deceptive in our day, uh, rises on the world through a lot of deception in, in, in our public life today. So let's begin with our prayers, and uh, we'll get right into the lecture. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teaching. Implant us in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is from the last and all holy good and life creating spirit, both now and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat> 
Simon. Open so fools to salis and addicts το πνεύμα το Άγιον και αυτόν την οικουμένη σαγκινεύσας την άνθρωπε δόξα Σι Αμήν Οκ Let's get started and we've got a lot to cover as usual So this is the second lecture, as we said, in our 10-point uh, series, 10-lecture series covering the New Martyrs. And we're going to have this in every, every lecture. We'll have this little card here, yesterday in Russia, today in America, which I think, as we said before, <coughs> is a, um, an updating of the prophecy of an elder that came out of Russia in Harbin, China, which he said today in Russia, tomorrow in America at the time, in the 20s, 30s. But I think we can update that and say that this is something that has now arrived, the spirit that is, not the persecutions yet, but the spirit in many ways has arrived uh, and is coming. So the onslaught of persecution and resistance under St. Tikhon, Lesson 2. And we begin with our look at the Bolsheviks and how they moved immediately upon grabbing power systematically uh, against the church. Uh, before I go on, the picture I see that you see behind me, uh, the picture you see behind me is a picture of the all-Russian uh, Holy Council that was going on exactly at the same time that the Bolsheviks were seizing power in Moscow you can imagine now <clears throat> you're in Moscow, you're one of the delegates, the 600 or so delegates from all over Russia, and you are meeting for the first time to elect a patriarch, the first time that is in, what, 350 years, since the 1700s, is that right, 300 years, uh, you're meeting to uh, elect the patriarch uh, the czar has been dethroned. He's no longer in power. You have these massive changes going on in the world. You just came out of war, watching World War I still raging. <clears throat> and, um, and now you have this atheist, communist group of thugs who are coming to power. As you, as you sit there in the, uh, the sacred space uh, that you see in the picture behind me with the, the head patriarch, Tikhon and the great hierarchs, including Metropolitan Anthony, uh, to his uh, to his left, and they're they're meeting in the midst of these revolutionary actions and killing and and taking power right in in Moscow right at that same time, and the uh, the Bolsheviks seize power and and you have a picture here of, of Lenin speaking to crowds there what is most likely Moscow. You have Lenin, or perhaps St. Petersburg, you have Lenin, and you have the Bolsheviks taking power, and right away, within a month, 
<clears throat> they begin a series of declarations, a series of of uh, decisions, which are one after another come flying at the church as they're in council there, taking away all land. And so all almost the vast majority of the vast majority of the way in which the Russian church had any income was immediately taken away from them. And then one week later, December 11th, all educational institutions are handed over to the state. There goes the church schools, church seminaries. There's no way for the church to now educate young people legally, not even for the priesthood, let alone catechism or other lesser schools. <coughs> Excuse me. One week later, December 18th, a new decree that only civil marriages will be recognized, that church's marriage, anyone getting married in the church is not recognized by the state any longer. And so they have to go also to submit themselves to the state power. Two weeks later, the beginning of, two, of 1918, they put an end to all financial aid, all financial support for religious Workers and all salaries that were, be given, that were given to priests or catechists are abruptly put to an end. Uh, and we might want to say that the provisional government that existed before them was actually, uh, had actually uh, paid for uh, a lot of the expenses for the council that was going on. So that would, that would last the, the church, that money would last the church until... August of 1918, and then that, that would abruptly come to end, and the council would end as well. There would be no way for them to support the people and the work. And so the council would go for, uh, for that, that long, and the money would run, run out. And so all of your, your, your income is taken away, your, your educational institutions are declared illegal and uh, Step by step, they're going to be taken over and taken away from the church, uh, civil marriages, and now all, all financial aid. Two weeks later, on January 23rd, the separation of church and state and the separation of schools and the church was declared. And this will have very far-reaching uh, and immediate effect on people all over Russia. All religious affiliation are stricken from the public record. It doesn't matter. And you will not see in the public sphere who you, who you belong to. Are you orthodox? Are you not orthodox? And so now religious education is just a private affair. So this is all within November, December, January, three months, <clears throat> less than three months all these changes are, are being made. And the aim, of course, is total control. So early 1918, the only recognized religious unit is the parish. They do not recognize the diocese. They do not recognize the patriarchate. <coughs> Excuse me. I have allergies. And they're lingering on here in the mountains here in Thessaloniki. We, we get spring a bit later. Everything a bit later, and so we're hopefully 
coming to an end. Uh, the only recognized religious unit is the parish, which cannot own property. So essentially the state says we own the property, we own the, the everything is owned by the, the state and we allow you to use it, to rent it. Uh, and so the government is trying to control all of church life and to a large degree institutionally they are they have absolute control. And they could essentially shut you down at, at, a, at a whim. Uh, the activities and the records could be examined. They could refuse registration for the parishes for any reason or no reason. And there were no higher courts of appeal. So you are literally at the mercy of thugs in many, many places around Russia. These are people who, before the Bolsheviks came to power, uh, had had not passed through, for the most part, uh, even um, higher education or had not received a lot of formation in, in, in Christian education or Christian formation. These are, these are people who had actually lived, some of the leaders at least of <coughs> the Bolsheviks, they had lived their life in and out of prisons. One particular person that I, that I examined who became the head of the, what would be the K, KGB uh, years after his death, but he was the head of the, uh, at the time, which was persecuting the church. He was born in Pol Pol Poland and um, spent much of his days almost immediately after high school in and out of prisons fighting the uh, system uh, and fighting the the uh, the czar from from the the far reaches of the of the empire, uh, and arrives much to his surprise, I would think, at this great position of power, and he decided the fate of thousands upon thousands of people who were slaughtered in the first uh, seven eight years until he he died in 1926. The name just escapes me; it's a little bit different. Difficult to maintain some of the names, but you can see that <clears throat> this man would never was was uh, you know just previously understood by Polish and Russian authorities to be a very dangerous and and rather despicable man, and now he is he is um, ruling over the fates of millions, and this is the this is repeated all over Soviet Russia uh, that the the intellectual elite, the educated people were seen as enemies and were thrown out or run out of the country or they were run into prison. And, of course, it's interesting, the fate of some of them, because as you remember from our lecture last week, St. John of Kronstadt was directing much of his complaints in the 1890s, early 1900s, to the intellectuals and saying that they were leading Russia down the path of socialism, communism, and apostasy. So now this very same new system takes many of them uh, into prison and they perish at the, at the, uh, uh, under the weight of the system or they're thrown out of the country entirely. So it's very, Tragic but ironic at the same time. In, <clears throat> so the total control 
over the church life. The bare performance of religious ceremonies was permitted. This is interesting because even in the West, there are many people who view the church through that lens as a place of ceremonies. There are many Orthodox Christians, in fact, on the fringe of the life of the church in the sense that they have not really understood or entered in deeply. And they look at the priest as someone who will perform the ritual. And it's not an accident, I would think. Uh, but it is a demonic uh, a, a, a goal to, to uh, transform in the eyes of the many the church from a place of communion, a place of living the life of Christ and holy, the Holy Spirit, uh, a place of confession of the truth and so much more, the depths of, of existence to experience into a magical ritualistic experience where religious ceremonies are, are performed and nothing more. So charity work, self-education, teaching of religious doctrine, material assistance to others and more was strictly forbidden. The government changed the work schedule to, to a five or six day work week, which was apparently changing every week. And so the rest days seldom coincided with Sunday. And a failure to work on Sundays was reason for dismissal. So now imagine you're in a society which just weeks ago, months ago, revered Sunday, and you had it there as an opportunity to worship the Holy Trinity. And now you were seeing that once every three, four, five weeks, six weeks, I don't know exactly what it meant, but it was <clears throat> shut down tremendously. You were working on Sundays. And that went on for 70 years. Your children and grandchildren, we're working on Sundays for the most part. You can imagine what that does to church life for many who are not prepared to go underground. In 1923, the provision for private religious institution was made void. Anything over instruction of three children was punishable. So I'm giving you a little bit further down the road what will happen with this, with some of this, <clears throat> these uh, provisions. They're amended and amended to make it even more stricter, worse or harder. And so 923, you are allowed by law to instruct no more than three people, three children at a time uh, for religious instruction. And then in 1929, it is um, only parental instruction that is allowed. So you are allowed to teach your own children and nothing more. So essentially 1929 comes total shutdown of any religious education whatsoever within 10 years or 12 years of the revolution. But immediately, really, for the most part, the life, church life in terms of religious education is, is put to an end. And what is the reaction of the church? Well, in Feb on February 1st, 1918, that's not very far into this. At the end of January, we have the separation of church and state. And so the three-month three period <clears throat> from their taking power now, less than three months have passed. And St. Tikhon comes out on his own with 
a very strong document which we're going to read. Uh, the time the council was in recession, apparently, and uh, they'll come and they'll add their own words to his uh, his uh, pastoral letter, his encyclical to the faithful. But St. Tikhon writes the following, very important and instructive for us today as we seek to find and follow a St. Tikhon in our day and someone who will lead the faithful uh, boldly and faithfully through the very difficult trying days we were, we are going through and we probably will go through in the future. The Holy Orthodox Christian Church is passing through a period of stress. Um, he leads with a quote from Galatians, he might deliver us from this present evil world. That's probably not the King James, actually, the more I think about that. The open and concealed enemies of the truth of Christ have started to persecute that truth and are aiming a mortal blow at the cause of Christ. In place of Christian love, they are sowing seeds of malice, envy, and fratricidal war. Christ's precept to love our neighbor is forgotten and trampled underfoot, should be underfoot. Every day we learn that innocent people, not excluding those lying sick in bed, are being frightfully and brutally murdered for the sole offense they have honestly discharged their duty to the country and have devoted all their energies to serve the welfare of the people. These crimes are committed in broad daylight with unprecedented effrontery and outrageous brutality in almost every city of our native land. Now, put yourself, you're in Russia, you're in a parish. The Patriarch has issued this encyclical and he's directing it to you. Think about it. Think about what, what you're witnessing transformation of all uh, daily life perhaps even witnessing these, these brutal and outrageous actions on the part of this thuggery. And now St. Tika comes with a word to you. I go on. <clears throat> these crimes fill our heart with deep sorrow and compel us to denounce sharply these monsters of the human race. In accordance with the precept of the Holy Apostle, them that sin reprove in the sight of all, that the rest also may be in fear. We could use this approach of St. Tikhon uh, quite a bit today, more often. It'd be good to see. He goes on, think what you are doing, you madmen. Stop your bloody reprisals. Your acts are not merely cruel. They are the works of Satan, for which you will burn in hellfire in the life hereafter and be cursed by future generations in this life. By the authority given me by God, I forbid you to partake of the Christian mysteries. I anathematize you if you still bear a Christian name and belong by birth to the Orthodox Church. And you... Faithful children of the Orthodox Christian Church, I beseech you to have nothing to do with this scourge of the human race. 
quote, put away the wicked man from among yourselves, unquote, 1 Corinthians 5.13. Violent outrages are being committed against the Orthodox Christian Church. The blessed mysteries which sanctify the birth of man, or the union of husband and wife in the Christian family, are openly declared unnecessary and superfluous. Holy churches are being destroyed by gunfire, churches of the Moscow Kremlin, or looted and desecrated the chapel of our Savior in Petrograd, St. Petersburg. Monasteries most revered by the faithful, such as Alexandro Nevskia or Pochachevskaya Lavras, have been seized by the godless rulers of darkness under the pretext that they are the people's property. Schools maintained by the Orthodox Church for the training of ministers and religious teachers have been declared useless and turned into either schools of atheism or into nurseries of immorality. Church monastery properties are being confiscated, are being confiscated under the pretext that they are the property of the people. But the legitimate will of the people is never taken into consideration. And finally, the government, which promised to give Russia justice and truth and safeguard freedom and order, acts everywhere and toward everyone, including the Holy Orthodox Church, with unrestrained arbitrariness and violence. Is there no limit to this insolence? Is there no way of stopping the aggressiveness of the enemies of the Christian church? I summon you, faithful and loyal children of the church, come to the defense of your outraged and oppressed Holy Mother. I summon you, beloved children of the church, even if you should have to suffer for the cause of Christ. For the apostle has said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And you, fellow prelates and priests, sound the call for the defense of the Orthodox Church. Without an hour's delay, organize unions of crusaders of the Spirit, who can resist external force with the zeal of the faithful. And I firmly believe that the enemies of the Church will be vanquished, by the cross of Christ, because the edifice of the divine crusader cannot be demolished. As he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the Tikhon, the patriarch of Moscow and all Russia. So I've been using, I'm using a translation that I found online, but I know that there's a probably a better translation, uh, which I did not have easy access to, but I think it's, it gives you the, not, there's not any major uh, uh, problems with the translation. Hopefully, it, it's it's we're not having any serious issues. But anyway, you can see here the very very serious and stark response of the patriarch, and you can imagine why he was forced into such a response after three months of immediately uh, terrorizing the people uh, and the crimes and the outrageous brutality that he speaks of here. And the words that are so strong, <clears throat> the works of Satan, he says, and that, that for which you will burn in hellfire. And that they, the Orthodox Christians should have nothing to do with the scourge of the human race. These, these calls for defense and suffering of the church, the resistance of the evil one, 
this was a watershed, of course, an amazing text, which uh, I suppose, my speculation here, he wrote with a firm hope, as he says, that, that this will not last, that these usurpers will be put to shame, and that this nightmare of atheist rule would not, not last long. And he had firm hope that repentance and also defense on the part of the faithful in Russia would bring it to an end. And yet, as we know, that's not, that was not the case. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway here is the man, the, the importance, the great importance of the, of the leadership of the church, the bishops in times of trial. And we have St. Tikhon to imitate uh, here in, in many ways. And what did the council do when they came together uh, after he had issued this encyclical they supported wholeheartedly. Let's hear what the Council of the Russian Orthodox Church has to say about his encyclical. The Holy Council of the Russian Orthodox Church lovingly welcomes the proclamation of the Holy Patriarch Tikhon, punishing the malicious evildoers and convicting the enemies of the Church of Christ. From the elevation of the patriarchal throne, a word of warning was, has thundered and the spiritual sword is raised against those who constantly are constantly scoffing at the sanctities of the national faith and conscience. The Holy Council bears testimony that it remains in the fullest unanimity with the Father and Intercessor of the Russian Church, responds to his challenge, and is ready to suffer in confessing the faith of Christ, its despisers notwithstanding. The Holy Council calls upon the whole Russian Church with its hierarchy and clergy at the head, to rally about the patriarch that our holy faith may not be reviled. So the council wholeheartedly supports the patriarch. You have oneness of mind uh, on the part of the leadership of the church. And this must have been a, a moment, a tremendous moment uh, for the Russian Orthodox Church. An encouragement, no doubt. And... <clears throat> Resolve to face persecution. I think this is one of the things that stands out is that they are ready, they say, to suffer in confessing the faith of Christ. And the patriarch calls them, even if you should have to suffer for the cause of Christ. So far from calling for violence, they're calling for resistance, yes, but willingness also to suffer. Uh and not, not to in, inflict suffering. So that is the stance of the Russian church immediately upon the coming to power of the Bolsheviks. They went on, though. They didn't just give words. They, they put things into practice. They had a plan of action to resist the plunderers and the robbers. And here's what they put together and formed committees for this, to carry this out. First of all, they call upon all the Orthodox Christians in Russia not to surrender anything voluntarily. So, to protect the holy things, because not only were they destroying lives, but they were destroying churches, they were destroying holy things as well. <clears throat> and they say to all the plunders, uh, that, all, that all the plunders, if they're known by name, that they 
be excommunicated by the hierarchs in the, uh, of the local church all throughout Russia. In the case of the whole village, if they were guilty, if they were coming together in this uh, persecution of the Christians, uh, the violence against the holy things or against the priest, the council calls upon the church there, the local church, to suspend all the services, close the church until repentance is shown. Calls upon the creation of Orthodox brotherhoods to be organized for the protection of ecclesiastical property, and they exhort the clergy to, to teach the people and to call them to repentance and prayer and explaining the current events from the Christian viewpoint. So that was some of the, so I summarized the, the, uh, the committee decisions or the, uh, the, rather the council decisions for the committees that they formed in those basic points, <clears throat> but there was much, there's much more. So there was a plan of action. We're not just sitting and docilely accepting uh, things as a uh, accomplished fact, but they were going to resist uh, this persecution. And in many ways, this persecution, I think, is open and so forceful precisely because it has to be, because you have here a massive church. Uh, there was over 1,050 or 60 monasteries. There were 50,000 physical churches built throughout Russia. Uh, there were um, tens of thousands of clergy and monastics. This was not an institution that you could simply say was uh, could be dealt with by marginalizing or by ignoring or being indifferent to. They knew, the Bolsheviks knew that if they were going to achieve their goals, they had to uh, decimate, uh, decimate the church, not just ignore it or discriminate against it. And so that's why these methods of the Bolsheviks immediately uh, were put into practice and why they were necessary. Whereas in the West, <clears throat> Christians are, Orthodox Christians especially, are a, a tiny minority. And the Christians, the, 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 the uh, Christian spirit and the Christian witness uh, is not nearly uh, as forceful and as as ingrained and and it rooted in the in the soil like it was in the in the East in the life of the church in life of the people. So the methods are different because the the nature of the Christian church and the Christian life is different. And so you needed, from the atheist standpoint, the persecutor standpoint, you needed a an abrupt nihilism of destruction. But that was not necessarily to, certainly in our day, post-World War II, the nihilism of destruction uh, is, not nearly, uh, is not, not nearly as necessary in order for them to achieve their goals. The perversion, the distortion through secularism has been achieved on a mass scale, and there are just pockets, really just pockets of true Christian struggles uh, going on in the, in the West for quite some time. So... So, yes, we might not have this open persecution, although there is that as well. Um, there is persecution that is as well in the West, and there maybe will be more and more as we go forward. But <clears throat> that doesn't mean that the 
the, the struggle is not similar on a spiritual plane, not to the same degree of, of destruction, but the, the spiritual struggle is similar. So there's much to learn here. So the, the, the council goes on uh, and makes some decrees after the, the, the decree of separating the church and the state and the schools in the church, uh, the council and the patriarch issue the following instructions to all the churches on February 18th, just a few days later, the following is issued. First of all, there's a call to priests for vigilance and protecting the church and uniting believers to defend against attacks on the freedom of the Orthodox faith and to increase the prayers for the enlightenment of those who are doubting. Secondly, the call to organize the faithful into united societies committed to defending the holy things and church property. And here's something very interesting. The organizations must not be called either church or religious societies since the new decree that had been issued, one of them, uh, has deprived these of all legal rights. So this is, I think, important to note. Immediately upon taking power, the Bolsheviks have essentially forced the church underground. They've made it illegal. Uh, they've deprived the church of all legal status. And so it's almost already foreshadowing the catacomb church. We already have uh, a, uh, a foreshadowing here of what's going to happen in the future as things get more and more repressive. And so that's, I think it's very interesting to note that right from the beginning, right from the beginning, the, the things are pointing toward a catacomb existence for Christians uh, and the fact that that didn't ha that happened, but on one level, there was not that at an official level among some hierarchs after the declaration of surges, we're going to get to that in the future. They chose to seek compromise and seek, uh, some kind of, uh, tolerance of the state. Well, that is already, you can see the foreshadow that that's going to be in the best interest of the atheists, right? The atheists are, are, are not, um, it's going to be a compromise on the part of the church. So it also says that one of the reasons that these societies, uh, there was another aspect of this, which is very interesting, which also points to a, uh, the future development of things in Russia is that in some cases, these societies can declare themselves owners of church property. It says they, they tell the people who are, the brotherhoods and the societies that are being created, declare yourselves the owners of church property in order to save them from seizure at the hands of the heterodox. So apparently there was immediately the problem that now that the church is being deprived of all legal rights, what will happen to all the property, including all the churches? Might they not be seized in different parts of Russia? Maybe that's already happening for them to make this point that immediately there was disputes on the part of the heterodox uh, in terms of the property. And so they say to these different societies that they are calling into existence for people to form, that they would assert themselves as owners of church property. Now, how, how that would happen, it's hard to understand, but that's an amazing thing to consider that immediately you had that threat. And in fact, indeed, in the, in the western part of Russia and Ukraine as well, there, are, there were many... Um, battles over church property with the Uniates and the 
Soviet power later on uh, will, will toy with the Christian groups and create a lot of division uh, where uh, didn't exist before. And so this will, this will be a problem going forward. Number three, a call to teachers of religion in the non-ecclesiastical educational institutions to extend their influence over the councils of educators and parents in order to defend the, the instruction of the faith. Now, <clears throat> I don't know, that would also be somewhat hard to do, but there was this call that the teachers would do whatever they could within the local school boards or the local uh, small uh, uh, elementary schools and all the rest to assert themselves. He's calling them to assert themselves. You know, there's there's this idea in contemporary orthodoxy. Well, um, you know, we don't we don't have to deal with with the, the public life. We don't have to deal with political life. We just go about our business and quietly go about. It. It's clearly not not the case in all places and all times, is there? The church here is calling them not to do that, not to be indifferent, to engage public life. And it reminds me of a quote, one of my favorite quotes from St. Paisius, the Athenai, where he says, in former times, those who were, were constantly dealing in public life, they were considered, let's say, less than wise from the Christians uh, because it was, it was considered a worldliness that the church uh, probably shouldn't be engaged in. When there was peace, and there was a Christian society, Christian uh, uh, rulers, uh, those who were really interested in spiritual life really didn't get involved very much. But he says that that's not no longer the case. He says the people who don't have any interest in the public sphere, they're not, they're not working and reacting against all these developments that are going on in the world. He said those are the crazy ones today. Those are the ones who are not well spiritually. So, you know, depending on the context, we have to uh, have discernment how to react, how to live. And it's not this, this one cookie cutter size for every culture, every society, every development. There has to be a, a, a creative witness to the truth in every society. And so uh, I would say uh, that here we're seeing that the church did not, consider it virtuous in the midst of these uh, developments of persecution for the Christians to sit by idly, to be indifferent, to be passive at all. And this was the initial God-inspired reaction on the part of the whole church, the whole council here, not just the patriarch. And you'll see that this, this goes on for a number of years, several years, but we'll see that this, this stance will become uh less harder and harder to keep and there'll be those in leadership who will abandon the stance and create many many problems in the church going forward so this is very interesting that right from the outset we have this reaction on the part of the council call to resist the removal of clergy and monks and others from monasteries because they were going immediately apparently immediately it's amazing the bolsheviks were so uh bold in their evil that they were going immediately and trying to remove clergy and monks and others from monasteries because, as they declared, all the property belonged to the state. And finally, church vessels should be protected by all possible means against desecration, and they should not be removed from their safe depositories. And that obviously was also happening as well. And actually, that'll be a major problem in a few years for the church 
when the uh, famine hits and you'll see uh, there that the communists take advantage in a big way of the, uh, uh, of the, of the church's reaction and uh, create a lot of division. So a little more, we're going to look at St. Tikhon now and his, in his first years as patriarch, first three years, and his role, I think this is one of the things we can learn most tonight, is from his example, the great saint and leader of the, of the Russian church, the missionary. For those of you who don't know, but I'm assuming most Orthodox are familiar, especially in America and other places with St. Tikhon, but he was a great missionary for the Orthodox church in North America, uh, was a bishop for about 10 years over the Aleutian Islands in San Francisco and, and, uh, and continental America, established uh, churches and missions uh, uh, to the various Orthodox groups throughout America and to non, non-Orthodox as well. He was really quite a pastor and a visionary and uh, a, a virtuous uh, meek, but also you can see very strong uh, leader, but a meek and, and humble man uh, and, and worked in the vineyard in America before being called back in 1907. It was 18, I think it was 1896 uh, or 98, I can't remember, to 1907 in America. He went back, he was a bishop in different parts, two different sees. Eventually in Moscow, right on the eve of the revolution, he became the bishop of Moscow and he chaired the council and then they uh, elected him uh, as the patriarch after after 200, three, almost 300 years uh, after Peter the Great of the Patriarchate being abolished. As we said in the last week's class, that is not unrelated to the fate of the Russian church. The fact that the government, the, the, the czars had agreed to this uh, abolishing of the Patriarchate is, uh, I think, noteworthy. And we have to realize that there was there, that was not a blessed and good thing for the church in Russia. Certainly, the lack of leadership and the lack of uh, Orthodox ecclesiology is going to have bad, negative effects on the whole people. So one of the first visits the Patriarch did was to go up to St. Petersburg in May of 1918 uh, during a, uh, a uh, recess of the Holy Council that had been going on for many months, off and on. And he was he was received, as you see in this picture, by crowds and throngs of many faithful. And as it says here in, uh, in, in a article going back to 1920, I think 23 was the article, even earlier, uh, written at the time by a, an archaeologist. It's, it's a very interesting and very excessive, uh, uh, extensive uh, covering of the church right at the time of the uh, revolution. Um, I think it must have been written even earlier. I don't remember the date right now, but he uh, he covers with pictures and 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 a timeline and things like that. It covers the the uh, um, life of Saint Tikhon and the church life there in 1918. And on his first visit to Saint Petersburg, a great crowd of cheering people gathered to greet him about three hours before the train was to arrive. From the station, he was driven in an open carriage to Alexander Nevsky Monastery and stood up during the entire drive about, of about a mile, it's a typo there, of a mile and a half less uh, uh, in the crowds which had gathered along the streets to see him pass by. So for 
for a mile and a half there, you had people lining the streets uh, just to see the patriarch as he passed by on the way to the monastery. The monastery, many bishops and over 200 priests and 60 deacons were present for the divine service. It was at this service that the patriarch preached a sermon pleading for martyrdom for the faithful, of the faithful, for Christ and his church. In other words, giving a witness, I think, if necessary, all the way unto death. So already, already just seven months into the rule of the Bolsheviks, the patriarch is foreseeing where this is going and calling on the people to remain steadfast. Uh, right after this, in July of, of 1918, we have the terrible regicide, the terrible murdering of the czar and his family. And here you see the picture of the house that they were in. On the left, in this corner, you see the actual room as it was after their, their cold-blooded murder and the and depiction on the right of, of actual the actual martyrdom of the royal family and the servants and what the Bolsheviks did. As the white army was approaching, they went in and murdered the czar so that he not fall into the hands of the white army. Uh, and this, uh, this crime, this brutal uh, slaughter of innocent people, of course, not just of innocent people, but of the, of the king, of the czar, uh, will be understood by the saints of the Russian church to be one of the major milestones on the path toward the dark uh, nights of communist rule. Uh, and, and far from repenting, uh, far from uh, respecting the uh, divine institutions, the history, the people, uh, the, uh, the, the czar's place in the Russian people, they seek to, to blot it out and to murder it. So what did St. Tikhon do when this happened? What was his response? In July of 1918, the czar and his family were brutally murdered by the Soviets and at the time, he was in Moscow, the Kazan Cathedral in Moscow, and he announced that, quote, the killing of the sovereign without a trial was the very greatest of crimes, and those who do not condemn this crime will be guilty of his blood. Those who do not condemn this crime will be guilty of his blood. Metropolitan Anastasia, Anastasi, who was, uh, who will become in the future the first hierarch of Rokor after Metropolitan Anthony Kapovitsky, he says that the patriarch also called the murderers regicides and all those who aided and, or sympathized with them. So this is uh, the strong re response on the part of the patriarch, which was continued, of course, in freedom among those hierarchs like Metropolitan Anthony and the Church Abroad throughout their history has continued to witness to this as being one of the great uh, evils that came about because of the re revolution. And this has to be repented of. And I guess one of the questions going forward as we go through our course, but also generally, is has it been repented of sufficiently? Is there true repentance on the part of the Russian people? And how does that, how has that been manifest? So St. Tikhon, throughout his first year as patriarch, uh, will preach repentance. 
to the people as the key, the cornerstone of avoiding further descent into uh, chaos and destruction will be the cornerstone will be repentance. And this is what all true preachers of the gospel will do. This is a sign for all of us as well. When we hear the preaching of repentance, then we know that we have a true disciple. And when there's no preaching of repentance, when there's rationalism and justification, moralism and legalism and ritualism or whatever else that it might be, secularism, when we have a distortion of the life of the church, that almost immediately the preaching of repentance evaporates, disappears. And this is very characteristic of our time today. We do not hear among many Orthodox Christians even, but far, far more in the world generally, the need to repent, to change our ways, to return and to uh, mourn and to weep over uh, what we have in some way or another participated in, and that is the uh, this, the forgetting of God, as the patriarch would say, that Russian people had forgotten God. This is what he would say constantly in his encyclicals and in his preaching, that this has come about because the people have forgotten God. And he would rouse people, call people constantly to come to knowledge of their sins, self-knowledge, and to repentance. This is the key in the spiritual life generally, but how much more in a time like this. In a speech of New Year's in 1918, he says, The past year has been a year of the building of the Russian realm, but alas, does it not remind us of the sad experiment of Babylonian building? And again, we have forgotten God. We have been hunting a new happiness, running after deceptive shadows. We've gotten drunk on the wine of freedom. The church condemns such building, such building of ours, and we warn most decisively that there will be no success until we remember God. I think this is noteworthy in the West as well. Of course, we have the same phenomenon without the persecution going on in the West for some time. This, this, this true, truly resembles a, the Babylonian insanity, right, of, of building without God, ascending to both on the intellectual sphere, rational sphere, but in the in, in technocracy and all that that we're living, we're living a, an attempt, uh, not at the time of Babylon, not, time, not unlike the, the communists and atheists. There really is not, spiritually speaking, a massive difference. There they persecuted and repressed and rejected God's even existence and wanted to wipe out his, his all of his work in society. Here, they persecuted in a much more subtle and deceptive ways. The demons persecute those Christians who work to live uh, a life pleasing to God and not drunk on the wine of freedom, as he says, right? Uh, not a license to do whatever you like, but to be free from sin. This is the true freedom in the church. So the church condemns this building of utopia, this Babylonian building. Church condemns it in every society, including the West. Church condemns the spirit of the social gospel trying to create in heaven and earth, uh, which is very much a part of the communist plan and the utopian, all the utopian schemes going back hundreds of years, including this, 
we have to say it and be honest, this utopian scheme of America and the, the West, this city on a hill, this uh, pursue your the American dream, all of this is a part of a worldliness and a desire for building on earth a heaven, uh, which is the perennial temptation of humanity. It's exactly the lie of the enemy in the garden to Adam and Eve. Be gods without God. That's what they try to do in Babylon. That's what they try to do with every utopia. So these words are applicable to us in the West and all throughout the world. It's because today, especially after 30 years after the fall of communism, what do we have but the same spirit now all throughout the world? The system, the repressive system has fallen. But has the spirit changed? Have they repented of that spirit? Have they repented of their Babylonian building? Have they repented of their being drunk on the wine of freedom, not true freedom, compassions and sin and death, but freedom from, uh, freedom to rather, to be licentious, to be, to be, uh, to indulge one's passions. That kind of freedom is slavery, actually. So this is a very, very timely uh, stance. This is what we need today. Preachers of repentance from this delusional uh, utopian stance of many Christians, right? That put the church at the service of the world. The church will now help us to achieve prosperity, peace in an external way, security in an external way. The church will be at the service. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And it's very much alive in the world today. At the outset of the Domitian fast now, in the 1st of August, he again pleads with the Russian people and he says, This terrible and exhausting night still continues in Russia. And no joyous dawn is to be seen in it. Our fatherland succumbs to fierce tortures and there is no remedy that can heal it. So where is the cause of this continued illness that throws some into apathy, others into despair? Sound familiar? Many are in despair today. Many, many have become apathetic. Uh, others have, rous- have arisen to the challenge and become more faithful. So it does depend on one's disposition. But there are many who are in despair today. Many perhaps who walked away from the church or are scandalized by the church leadership. In a way, this, this distortion in the West is far worse than what initially they were experiencing in communist Russia. The attack, uh, the Bloodshed is, of course, throughout church history, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So, in some ways, this persecution is preferable, spiritually speaking, to what many many experience in the West today. I should say in the West, all around the world. There really is no more West-East. It's all been united in the same worldly spirit. Um, He says, to find an answer to this question. Question your orthodox conscience, and in it you will find the answer to the vexing question. It will tell you that the sin that weighs over us is the source of all your ills and misfortunes. Sin has disintegrated our land. Sin has led the Lord to deprive us, according to the word of the prophet, of the staff and the rod and all the strengthening of bread, of the courageous leader and warrior, for the judge and the prophet and the wise, of the judge and the prophet and the wise elders. Sin has darkened the reason 
of our people. And so we are groping in darkness without light and totter like drunkards. Sin has fanned everywhere the flames of passion, hostility, and ire. Brother risen against brother. Prisons are filled with captives. The earth is soaked. The earth is soaked in innocent blood, shed by brotherly hand, polluted by violence, pillaging incest and other infamies. Sin, heavy and unrepentant, has summoned Satan from the abyss. This is obviously a reference to the book of Revelation. Satan is summoned from the abyss, and he has now been bellowing his lies at the Lord and his church and is inaugurating an open persecution of the church. So here is a true evangelical Orthodox Christian preaching of repentance and calling people back to the basics of the spiritual life. And this missing of the mark, and what is the mark? That's what sin means. Sin is a missing of the mark. What is the mark? The mark, of course, is purification from that which obstructs communion. And communion being the ultimate mark, that's, the, that's salvation. And so turning away from that communion and indulging oneself and becoming defiled by the things that were created for the good pleasure of man and for his union with God now have been used against that and in spite of that and indifference to that purpose of life. This is sin. This is the missing of the mark. And so... The rites, we could say in another, another using more St. Paisius kind of language, the rights of the, we have given rights to the enemy. We've given rights to the enemy for, for him now to take power over us and to rule over us. This is how things work in the spiritual life. So it's calling us to self-knowledge. It's calling us to repentance. And this is the source of all the ills and the misfortunes. And St. Tikhon goes on. Preaching repentance. He says in, other, in the same talk later on, Oh, who will give our eyes the necessary tears to bewail all the ills that have been begotten by our national sins and lawlessness? The obscuring of the glory and beauty of our fatherland, the impoverishment of the land and exhaustion of the spirit, the destruction of towns and villages, the reviling of churches and holy relics, and all that shattering self-annihilation of the great of a great people that made it into a horrible and shameful spectacle for the whole world. It's not an accident that he talks about annihilation because I think what really was going on and is going on in the world and has been going on for some time is nihilism and loss of all kinds of meaning in life. When you lose any connection to an eternal life and the meaning of life can only be found in eternity, well, then everything else is going to lead to a nihilism, a meaninglessness. And so it's not an accident. He says the shattering self-annihilation of a great people that made it into a horrible and shameful spectacle for the whole world. Um, he does not simply condemn in a political reactionary way the particular Bolshevik bullies. He does that as well, of course, he, in other words, he condemns their actions. But you see that he actually is preaching, preaching repentance to the Orthodox themselves, to the rest of society who are not actively involved, that this is, this is what's led to this, right? We have nothing to do but weep deeply 
first and foremost, for what has become of Russia, and one could apply it to all of us today in the West, do we have tears? Do we have that stance that we are co-responsible? We talked about this last week. And every great teacher of the church will bring us to that stance. This is where we have to come. It's not enough for us to condemn the darkness. We have to take responsibility for our part in bringing about that darkness in the world. This is key. And um, this is true always, but it's even more true when you have an evil manifestation in public life. How much more is this the case and needs to be done? Finally, just some more excerpts from the preaching and teaching of St. Tikhon and the preacher of repentance. He says, Where art thou formerly so mighty and sovereign Russian people? Hast thou completely outlived thy strength? As a giant, magnanimous and joyful, thou hast fulfilled by great appointed path, heralding peace, love, and truth to all. And now thou lies smitten and cut down by thy enemies, burning up in the flames of sin, passion, and interceding hatred. Notice how he says, the enemies have cut thee down, and, they're burn- and you're burning up in the flames of sin, passion. This is not unrelated to our own state, right? Uh the strength has been lost precisely because the rights have been given to the enemy, right? This is, the, this is again, the, the message of the, of the patriarch. Is it possible that thou will not surge up again, spiritually rise again in power and glory? Has the Lord forever deprived thee, deprived thee of the sources of life, extinguished thy creative power in order to cut thee down like a barren tree? May this not be so. The mere thought of it makes us shudder. The mere thought of it makes us shudder. Weep, dear country. Bewail the heavy sins of our fatherland before it has perished completely. Weep for yourselves and for those who became of their hardened hearts, have not, who, who because of their hardened hearts have not the grace of tears. So again, a very, very instructive teaching us to weep not only for our sins, but for the sins of the fatherland, and even for the sins of those who have no tears, weep for them as well. So there's a collective and a mutual responsibility, very clear here. Some people say, uh, well, this evil thing is happening in our life, in our parish, in my family. What should I do? And there are times when it's better not to be involved, depending on the dynamics there. But there are many times when it is called to be involved. If it's a communal, common uh, affliction that, that is a scandal to all of us in the community, well, then we're, we're called to be involved in that and to solve it, right? We cannot be indifferent to that. So this is another, you're in a parish, you're in a community, and you see that perhaps in, this will increase in our days, Priests, for lack of understanding, priests, for lack of right teaching, priests, for lack of courage, priests, for lack of catechism, whatever it might be, clergy, leaders, whatever it might be, they're scandalizing the faithful with their actions. 
are we not co-responsible for that situation? Uh, there are a variety of things one could point to. I mean, COVID and all of its accompanying insanity. If certainly, there are many examples that I've heard and you've given through these lectures over the last year. But even on a more basic level, on moral and, and, and issues, when you have immorality on, on a level of a communal and it's, and it's, and it's manifest, and there is a, 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 sim, a seemingly a wink toward that immorality because the, the priest or the people don't want to face forthrightly the sin for, la for, for their own uh, lack of conviction or out of some kind of worldliness they don't want to offend or whatever it might be. And we see all this. Are we not co-responsible? In other words, this is an extreme example in the life of the church in Russia. We have this nihilism, this Golgotha that they, they were living through. But it's a, true on many levels in our own life that we're called to feel and weep for our brothers and sisters, but also act in positive ways, uh, if possible, intercede ourselves. It's, it's, it's not a one-dimensional thing. We just go to our room and weep, and that's it. No, it's weep, pray, have pain of heart, and, and act, and act, depending on the circumstance with discernment. It's all necessary. And that's exactly what you're seeing here from the hierarchy and from St. Tikhon is exactly that. There was actions, defend, uh, respond, uh, show faith. And there was also calls to repentance, calls to weeping, calls to um, pain and suffering uh, with, with all. So it's, 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 it's a multifaceted spiritual life. It's not one dimensional and we all need to be. And it's on, a, on all levels, right? Small and large. Uh, levels. It's not just um, the, ma the massive issues of people today tend to talk, well, this is not a dogmatic issue, so we don't have to talk about it. We don't have to deal with it. That's just none of our business. But this whole distinction is this sharp, uh, stark distinction between dogma and ethos. Yes, it exists on a theoretical level, but in real life, it doesn't exist. There's no like demarcation line. Oh, now it's dogma and now it's ethos. It's one life, right? And so Let's not be confused with thinking because it's not an extreme. It's not an obvious ex and ex uh, extremely, um, um, you know, well-known dogmatic issue about the person of Christ, the Holy Trinity. That therefore, I, I'm just going to live a individualistic spiritual life and go about my business. This is insane. There are many other challenges of church life that we are co-responsible for on many levels. Uh, the ethos and the and the the teaching of the church, for instance, about marriage and about immorality is a dogmatic issue ultimately, right? It's a part of the revelation of Jesus Christ as to how to live in Christ. Uh, everything that dis distorts and, and, and takes away the Christian from the narrow path ultimately is a kind of heresy, right? I mean, there's there's levels or degrees and categories of heresy, but the problem with that with heresy is not in and of itself uh, the error. That's not the main problem. The main problem is that it takes us away from communion with God. So the, there are a whole variety of heresies. 
I watched a uh, video the other day with um, a debate between Father Patrick Ramsey and a Protestant uh, on ecclesiology. I had a little time, uh, was able to watch it on my way somewhere, just a bit of it. And what struck me was the Protestants uh, was doing exactly this. He was saying, look, there, there's heresy and then there's the rest. And the rest doesn't matter. You can be separated and be a, in, in schism on those lesser things. That doesn't really make take you out of the church. So the, schism, the heresies of the ancient church aren't like the heresies of our day. And we have very different heresies. So therefore, if there's division on the basis of, this, of these heresies, there's not really division in the church. That is just nonsense, utter nonsense, because it doesn't understand the point and the problem of heresy. The fathers of the church, when somebody was separated from the church, for whatever reason, that was the problem. Heresy is not an end in itself. It's to get us out of communion with God. That's why he introduces it, the enemy of our salvation. So what takes us out of communion with God? That is a, a machination and a distortion introduced by the enemy. And, it, and if, if it brings about the same end, which is a loss of the grace of God and not having communion with God, that means the loss of salvation. It's equally problematic, right? It's equally destructive. And this points to the extreme realism of the church, that we are a body in time and space, that Christ's body is in time and space. You have to be a part of that. And so, again, uh, it's not an accident that we did our ecclesiology course. You see it everywhere. And here in this course, you're going to see it again and again and again. Surgeonism, so-called surgeonism, Caesaropapism, it's a question of ecclesiology. Today, everywhere, the question of life in Christ, salvation, what it means, it's all related to who is Christ, where is the body of Christ, in other words, ecclesiology. So a little bit of a tangent here, but not really, because what St. Tikhon is preaching to us is exactly that we are co-responsible for the body, we are co-responsible for all of these threats to a distortion and a perversion and a drawing away of many souls from the body of Christ. And he certainly could see where this was headed. Millions and millions of Russians over time will be disassociated and divided from the body of Christ because of the Bolsheviks, because of all the machinations and distortions on all these levels, beginning with, uh, you know, cutting off the funds, cutting off the rights, uh, making the church illegal. And it's a process of distortion and disintegration that is going to lead to what the aim of the enemy is in every generation. Take people out of communion, take them out of the body of Christ, take them out of the Eucharistic assembly, take them out of the experience of God in the divine liturgies and the divine services. We see that same thing going on today. Same end game. Let's remember the end game. He does all of that, utopia on earth, all of that for one end game. No communion with God, no grace of God. That's the end game. All right, let's go to the next um, uh, little uh, slide here. So let's look at just some numbers because that will help us to, to see, to understand the degree to which they're suffering. And unfortunately, the numbers are not always clear. We don't have very, very precise numbers. In fact, these numbers are probably going to be much less than they are in reality. So... Increasingly, step by step, 1918, 1919, the decision became one of martyrdom or apostasy for many clergy and many lay people. It became a daily choice. 
perhaps not blood martyrdom, but certainly suffering or apostasy. At least there were 28 bishops who were murdered by the communists during this time period. Uh, there were at least 1,414 priests who were murdered. I say murdered and not killed because many times they say killed, but it's not really, they weren't, they weren't killed like some manslaughter. They were murdered. Right? This is a demonic hatred of man that is being lived out. There were 637 of the 1,026 monasteries were liquidated. That means they were, the monks were expelled, they were taken over and used for other purposes or destroyed. 637 monasteries within a year to a year and a half of coming to power. Maybe two years at the most, right? 637 if you're in America, in Canada, what do we have? How many monasteries do we have all together? What, 50 maybe? <clears throat> in all of the North America? 50. They have 637 that were liquidated, destroyed. It's amazing, even in, in two years' time. Likewise, from 1918 onward, no theological books were printed, no church schools were open, all candle factories were closed. So if you went to church during this time period, you didn't light a candle, or if maybe some candles were left over somewhere here and there, you didn't have access to new books. There were no church education classes going on. It's all been shut down. Let's look at a little bit, just a snapshot of the methods, the, tech, the typical order of events, how, they, how the Bolsheviks would order things so they could get the most perverse and distortive uh, and, and destructive uh, outcome. So remember the January decree of the separation of church and state. This decree was enforced step by step in different places all around the Russian Empire. It wasn't all enforced all at once in January. So over time, over the whole time period of 1918, in different parts of Russia, they would come to enforce the separation of church and state uh, in all the various facets. In many places, there would be rebellion, there would be reaction, there would be rejection on the part of the people. And there would be fighting between them and the authorities. And sometimes the people would kill the authorities. And sometimes, and many times, the authorities would kill the people. And so there would be bloodshed. And in the midst of this, the Russian people who loved to do the Russian procession, the religious procession, was very much a part of their life. For whatever, whatever the problem was, they would take as they still do, uh, take to the streets, take around the church uh, with their icons, and they would pray and supplicate God, Molebans and all the rest. And so they would hold these things in the middle of these temptations many times, and there would be indiscriminate killing and murdering of the faithful in order to so-called put down so, the so-called rebellion of the faithful. Right? There would be martial law declared, and the leaders of resistance and clergy were summarily executed. And there are many stories of priests who were just taken out and executed without any proof or any trial or anything. And we have the example of Metropolitan Vladimir Kiev with, with in, in one such incident. Just a mob scene and a murdering of the Metropolitan. Here's a picture of him on the screen, the Metropolitan. The first, I think, I think chronologically the first 
bishop to be murdered by the uh, Bolsheviks. The clergy were often the scapegoats, as it were, uh, as believed that they were the center of the monarchist support and instruments of that bourgeois reaction which aim which aims uh, to defend exploitation supposedly of the, by stupefying the working class. This is a quote from the uh, from the communists. So if when in doubt, kill the priest. He's he's at fault, is basically the stance of the Bolsheviks. And if we look again at the methodologies of the Bol- the methodology of the Bolsheviks in terms of their war against the holy relics. They had an amazing war against holy relics. Just uh, a lot of people don't even don't pay attention to this. There's not, not a lot of mention given this, but they went around Russia almost immediately during 1918 and 1919 on a hunt to uncover and reveal and supposedly disprove whatever they're trying to disprove with regards to the relics. And there was a massive program of blasphemy and desecration of the relics of saints throughout Russia. They would organize an autopsy of the relics, supposedly, right? So they would put it and desecrate it. In nine, by the fall of 1920, it's supposed that there were 60 holy shrines throughout Russia. I mean, well-known shrines of saints that had incorrupt relics and places that were desecrated in the territories that were controlled by the Soviets. Remember, there was a war going on, there was a civil war, there were parts of Russia that were not controlled by the Soviets during this time period. And Patriarch Tikhon, in his appeal to the commissars, to Lenin, about this mockery of the shrines, he writes, the opening of the relics obliges us to stand up for the abused shrines and tell the people we must obey God and not uh, man, right? He's quoting St. Peter's response in the Acts of the Apostles to the call uh, of the uh, religious authorities in that day to stop preaching Christ. So this is the response of the church in every age. We must obey God and rather than man. And this applies, and we applied it for the last year to the whole COVID insanity. We must obey God rather than men in terms of our holy temple and our worship and all the rest. And so he says the same thing to the communists who are coming and abusing and desecrating the holy relics. It's about this time on June 13th, 1919, that a crazed woman attempts to murder Patriarch Tikhon and actually stabs him with a knife, but the knife did not go very deep, in fact, at all. So it was not, it was just a very slight flesh wound. He had two uh, cassocks and exorasa, and so he was not severely uh, injured. But you can see that what's going on here, the struggle, the demonic powers at work, uh, obviously, I mean, why? Why would a new utopian communist dictatorship need to desecrate all of the holy relics? Why? Because it's demonic. Because it's a demonically inspired destruction and nihilism, and these kind of things prove uh, the satanic aspect of it all. 
in, 19, in July of, 90, of 1919, there's a new proposal that's approved on the elimination of relics on an all-Russian scale. So this was a systematic, intentional desecration and elimination of that which is most holy in society. Uh, you might say, well, we don't have this problem in the West. Well, we don't have many holy relics either, do we? We, we didn't have to have this nihilism of destruction in the West because it was already done hundreds of years ago when they destroyed it during the Protestant Reformation. For instance, in England, they destroyed relics, countless relics and uh, of the saints were destroyed hundreds of years ago. So this process in the Orthodox world, this happens in Greece as well. This, for instance, uh, just to give an example, in Greece, a very sudden and abrupt and almost overnight overturning of the way of life of millions of Greek Orthodox Christians in the 20th century happened through urbanization. A, a, a Literally within a span of 20 years, all of, the, all of the villages were emptied out after the Second World War. Well, that process happened over many, many years in the West. It did not happen over 20 years, but probably 100, 200, 300 years. And the same thing with the Russian desacralization. It happened abruptly, violently, and there was really no other way for the demons to achieve their goals of a desacralized world, but in the Orthodox context to come about and to abruptly and, and with violence overturn and, and, and desecrate. Well, in the West, this happened this has been happening since the Protestant Reformation and much earlier, probably, a desecration of the holy things and a, and a disdain for the holy things. And so you have a loss of the sense of the sacred entirely in the West. I mean, uh, Protestant, for the most part, many of the contemporary Protestant expressions of worship resembles less Christian worship uh, than new age or, or, or some kind of lecturing in a, in a lecture hall it has little to do with the sacred spaces of the Christian church for 2000 years. And so this, this desacralization has been the fact of life in the West for some time. The Patriarch writes the commissars in, in November of 1990 of 1918. And he writes now, all who have taken the sword will perish from the sword this prophecy of the Savior, we turn toward you, present rulers of our fatherland. Call yourselves popular commissars. A whole year you hold the power in your hands and just get ready to celebrate the anniversary of the October Revolution. But the blood of our brothers shed like rivers and spilled through you clamors into heaven and forces us to say to you a bitter word. He says much, which I can't, I didn't include here. There's not space. Yes, we are living through the terrible times of your rule and for long. It will not efface itself from the people's souls. Having obscured in them the image of God and having stamped on them the image of the beast. Again, a reference to the book of, Apoc of, of Revelation here. Clearly saying that this, this is a satanic, apocalyptic, uh, type of the end times here that the church is living. Now to you who are who used your powers for the persecution of the innocent, 
We direct our word of warning. Celebrate the anniversary of your rule by freeing the imprisoned. Cease the bloodshed, violence, destruction, persecution of the faith. Turn up. Uh, that's that's a typo there. I don't know. I can't remember what that is, but uh, cease destroying. It must be. I don't know what, how that happened, but, but maintaining order and laws. Give the people their well-deserved rest from civil war. Otherwise, you will have to answer for all righteous blood shed by you, and from the sword you will perish who have taken it. It's very interesting because many, many will perish at the very hands of the communists themselves. As is well known, Stalin, after he took power, had several purges of, the, of not only the church and the other people who were his enemies, <clears throat> but of the Communist Party itself. And many of these outlaws, outlaws will die by the sword as prophesied by the patriarch here. But you see the patriarch is not letting up. He's, <clears throat> he's over a year, in, year into this battle with the Bolsheviks, and he's calling them boldly, to repentance. No, he must know that he's going to be singled out and and he's going to be chased down by the communists eventually. It's just a matter of time. As the regime now gains stability, the stance of the patriarch is altered. Because it's one thing to see suddenly these thugs come to power and have great hope that they will be dethroned within a short amount of time. But after a year, year and a half, you start to see that actually they've gained a foothold, they've gained power, control over much of society, and this isn't going to end quickly. And so you change your tactic for the sake of the people. And he says now, slightly differently than his original statements, which is, some might say this compromise, I think it's more of a wise management of the household. He denied all acts of subversion against them by saying that the establishment of any particular form of government is not the work of the church, but of the people themselves. So he's saying, look, we're not directly responsible for resistance to this government. And that's not the role of the church. He reiterates every, his every constant plea, his ever constant plea for repentance by the people themselves. For only this would save Russia from disorder and destruction, and make the Lord change his wrath to mercy. This is the same call of repentance that came from, unfortunately, very few after the rise of the COVID insanity, and unfortunately, very few called the people themselves, the Orthodox Christians, the bishops and priests, to repentance. But that was the right response. Instead of looking at it rationalistically, legalistically, moralistically, in a worldly way, as a health problem, only the church those voices in the church that are representative of the same stance of the saints called the people to repentance all of this is allowed by god because we have given rights to the enemy and now we have to go through the process of purification but it's sped up and there's less damage done when each one of us repents and takes on the whole as our own this is the mystery what our Lord himself did and gave us an example that we might follow him and not look at humanity as something else, but as my common 
nature and my brothers and sisters and all of us are co-responsible. Just to give you another example of some of the things that are going on during the 1918-1920, they have these show trials, right, which they, they publicize widely. They trump up these charges against people as being revolutionaries, and then they their aim is to terrorize the people and especially the clergy. So there was a show trial of a certain A.D. Samarin and Professor Kuznetsov and several monks. It was conducted by the much-feared Soviet prosecutor N.V. Kirilenko. And during the trial, Kirilenko says the following, which gives a good insight into the mentality of the Bolsheviks. He says, Samarin and Kuznetsov, these are the general staff, the conscious leaders of that ideology against which the proletariat is fighting to the to the end without mercy. It should be end without mercy. All right. So he's saying you are the enemies of our of our fight. You are the main. We have to we have to eliminate you. He says they must be eliminated. That's pretty amazing. In public, he says they must be eliminated. They are enemies of the people. They must be slaughtered. And all similar leaders from the intelligentsia will come to the same end. The case of Patriarch Tikhon is in my portfolio. So he says to shake terror into the world of the church, that he has his eyes on Patriarch Tikhon, and he, in other words, he must be eliminated as well. So they sentence these poor folks to be shot, but then their uh, sentence was changed to five years in concentration camp. And actually, they're going to return, I think, even less than five years, if I remember correctly. So this is the tactics of the, the bullies, the totalitarian, that they, 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 the main tactic is fear. And it reminds us of something, doesn't it? <laughs> Today in our world, that the main tactic of the enemy is fear, to strike fear into you. You will die. You will be sick. Fear your brother, fear your community, fear going to church, fear communing, fear everywhere. Right? This is exactly what they were doing, striking fear into everyone to cower before them and to do their will. This is, this is the satan a sign of satanic methodology, and we see the same thing in our day uh, among the uh, worst examples of the of the spreading of fear among the COVID uh, narrative, those who are pushing the COVID narrative. So this is a these are perennial lessons to learn here. This is why we're watching and or, or following and trying to teach you about what happened in these days because there's so much to learn from the machinations uh, of the machinations of the enemy and the response of the saints. <clears throat> the patriarch now, on November 7th, 1920, so we're now... Three years into the revolution, almost exactly, the patriarch publishes his decree, his Yukaz 362, very, very important for the whole future of Russian orthodoxy in the 20th century. And this is what will be uh, decisive for the church abroad as well. In case that a diocese, because of the fluctuations of the front line, meaning the civil war that's going on in Russia, or the change in the borders of the realm, the realm of the Bolsheviks, should find itself outside of all communication with the higher administration, in other words, the Patriarch and the Holy Synod, 
Or if the higher church administration with its head, the Holy Patriarch, for some reason, should wind up its administrative activity. In other words, he's put under house arrest or he's put in prison, which happened, which was happening. The bishops of the diocese should immediately establish contact with the bishops of a higher diocese. So maybe the, the metropolitan seat, the larger city, for whatever, or the or the, the bishop who is who's has seniority. <coughs> uh, in order to organize the highest tribunal of church jurisdiction for several dioceses, finding themselves in similar conditions, either in the form of a provisional church government or a metropolitan or in some other way. All right, so he's giving a direction. He's saying, look, this is going to be a long haul. What are we going to do? We're not going to be able to work normally. This is a extreme. And you know what? This is the kind of thing we're living in today, right? It's extreme examples and people are coming to me and coming to others and saying, well, what do we do? Should we do, do we do, you know, this normal thing is this. This is what church life is all about. This is the normal church life. And then we have these extenuating circumstances, these crazy things. We have bishops or priests who are teaching crazy, unorthodox things. What do we do? Well, and many people say, no, 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 just stick with what's normal. Yeah, but that's not, that's not wise. That's not discerning. Yes, it's dangerous. But it's also dangerous to, to stay in a, uh, a, a in a box that doesn't is no longer apply, right? You you've got to think outside the box. So the patriarch Tikkun here is saying the time has come for us to think outside the box. We can't operate as we should and freely do. So what do we do? Well, here's the example of what I'm going to do. Here's here's what you need to do when you're abroad and you can't contact us. You're no longer in communion with us, and we're shut off. Here's what you're going to do. And this is going to be absolutely essential for the church abroad. In cases of complete disorganization of church life, the bishop was ordered not to give up his rights, but organize parishes, dioceses, which would remain faithful, giving them the power to organize services, even in private homes, and severing all connections with disobedient parishes. So he's saying here are the extreme examples Here's what I'm going to give you general guidelines. How are you going to work now in these new conditions? And I think we should note here that perhaps the living church temptation is already on the horizon for St. Tika. It must be there because he's seen the temptation of living church here and preparing for it, I think. Uh, the increasingly totalitarian rule of the atheists, right, is also in mind. He has in mind here. He further decentralized administration and essentially took another step toward an underground organization of the church. So decentralization is the basic stance, and for a variety of reasons, depending on the temptation in the different parts of the Russian Orthodox Church. It was upon the authority of this degree, decree that the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia was established and governed throughout its, its history until the early 21st century. Uh, then things changed with the reunion with the church in Russia, Moscow Patriarchate, that is. We'll talk, we may talk about that in a future podcast. We'll see. Uh, as a result of the policy of, quote, war communism, uh, 
a severe famine began in the country. War communism was the the changes in the economic system, which were abrupt and total, and brought about all kinds of uh, breaks in the supply chain, basically, to just say it simply as, as I understand it. And so it caused, it caused, it was a human cause for a severe famine in the country, covering vast territories and tens of millions of the population. So now with this famine, we also have a, a, an opportunity for the Antichrist, the, the, the communist, to war against the church. This reminds me, personally, of the kind of thing we're going through today. We have a health crisis, and now an opportunity for those who hate Christ and the church and want to create a utopia. That's what we see going on right now with some of these people in these think tanks and in these places of power, the, the banksters and the, and the uh, World Economic Forum types who are insane utopianists, right? Trans uh, humanism and all the rest they're dreaming about. Uh, they're taking advantage of what is most likely a manufactured virus in the, in the Wuhan lab. Uh, that's now, interestingly, isn't it, that it's now coming out that that's actually very much a possibility where they called people conspiracy theorists last year who said that that was probably what happened. Now they're saying, yeah, it's certainly a possibility and we got it wrong. In any case, similar methodology, isn't it? Take advantage of this to now persecute and destroy and uproot uh, the church. Do away with the divine services. Uh, create all these unorthodox practices in the midst of the temple. And we have a, of course, demonic-inspired, demonically-inspired perversion and distortion of life. Let's see what happened then, 1921-1922, with the confiscation of church valuables. Immediately after the beginning of this disaster, the Orthodox Church, without any coercion, on its own initiative, took an active part in providing all-around assistance to the starving. So the church didn't wait for the communists to tell them to love their neighbor. They immediately started to collect money. And already in August of 21, before there was this, there was this massive uh, starvation going on, Patriarch Tika made an appeal for help to the peoples of the world and the heads of foreign Christian confessions. At the same time, with his blessing, the All-Russian Church Committee for Aid to the Hungry was created. Collection of donations began in all churches. However, however, such social and uh, uh, social activity of the church caused extreme irritation among the Bolsheviks. Therefore, at their request, the church community was closed. The funds raised were transferred to the government committee to help the hungry. God forbid the church do anything that the people would then applaud and love. So they shut down the church's philanthropic work. But interestingly, they changed their tune afterwards. When they saw that the people weren't giving anymore, then they actually helped. They asked the church to help later on. But then we'll see. We'll see how perverted that was as well. After accusing the church of unwillingness to help the starving, <laughs> after the church had done it on its own, now they accuse the church of helping, not helping the starving. On the 23rd of February now, in 22, 
The Bolsheviks issued a decree of the All-Russian Central Executive Committee on the forcible confiscation of church values. So now they're going to go around and say, we want you to give us all of your valuables to, to transfer into, into rubles in order to send money to all these starving people and get for them to get food and not die. But they had already shut them down, and now they forced them to give them things which the church says we cannot give. So Patriarch Deacon says, look, I can't give you the holy things. That's against the church canons, against the teaching of the church. I give you all the rest, but I can't give you the chalice and the patent and the things we use in the holy altar for the divine liturgy. Of course, they had no interest in that. And they could care less. And here's what Lenin himself says. On March 19th, 1922, this has been recorded and now it's become public, of course, all these years later. He says, look, destroy and kill without mercy. Listen to what he says. It is now and only now when people are being eaten in the hungry steps and hundreds, if not thousands of corpses are lying on the roads, we can and therefore we must carry out the confiscation of church values with the most furious and merciless energy without stopping before the manifestation of any resistance. Mercifully, without mercy, the more representatives of the reactionary bourgeois and the reactionary clergy we manage to shoot on this occasion, the better. People today talk about, oh, there are no conspiracy, you know, we don't believe in conspiracy theories. Well, here, here's a slight, a slight conspiracy you might want to consider because now we actually have the text. It shows that they were conspiring against the church every step of the way to destroy the church, kill the people as much as possible. And the idea that this was just then and not now, they're not people who are like Lenin today, is absurd. We're actually worse off in the world today. There's less of a moral compass, a moral undergirding of society today. There's more perversion, more distortion. There are Lenins who are far more refined in their perversion and distortion and satanic methodology than he was. They have techno technology at their hands, they're technocrats, and they're, they're working in a more uh, refined way to bring about a utopia, just like he was trying to bring about the utopia of, of his communism. So this is what's going on behind the scenes. We know this now. This has all you know, been come out of the last 30 years that Lenin, maybe even earlier, I'm not sure when this was published, that's the reality behind the scenes of the atheists and the antichrist and of every age. <clears throat> so not only is Lenin saying, hey, it's a good opportunity for us to kill as many as possible, but they're actually making it a, a very clear decision in their paperwork in 1922, same time period, that they're going to target the church for annihilation. So during this time period, with the announcement of a campaign to confiscate church valuables, a new tragic stage began in the relationship between the church and the state. The Politburo of the Central Committee of the All-Union Communist Party, the Bolsheviks, in other words, openly defined the task of suppressing and gradually destroying the Orthodox Church in the country. Right? They didn't hide it any longer. We must destroy the Orthodox Church. Throughout the spring of 1922, mass bloody clashes 
with the confiscation of church valuables swept across the country. According to incomplete statistics, such collisions occurred more than 1,414 times. So 1,000, let's say 500 times in the spring of 1922. That's just a few months' time, like March, April. It's kind of a mind-boggling number. 1,014 times they had clashes. They had bloody clashes. So all around Russia, all around Russia, the Bolsheviks are entering the churches to steal and, and, and appropriate all of the holy things. And the faithful are rising up and defending the holy, as they were called upon by the Holy Council. Can you imagine? you realize what, what struggle was going on and what a bloody struggle that was for the people? Mass criminal trials against clergy and believers began everywhere. This is great for them. Now we can actually take these people who are defending the church valuables and put them in prison and, and, and kill them. In Moscow alone, 11 clergymen were sentenced to death right there in that period, in two-month period. Patriarch Tikhon was also brought to trial. For his courageous speech at the trial, the patriarch was arrested and imprisoned, in which he was held for more than a year. This was his time of house uh, confinement. Eventually went to a monastery in Moscow, and he was there. During 1922, during the confiscation of church valuables and clashes and in court, 8,100 priests, monastics, and novices were shot. 8,100 clergy, monastics were, were murdered. And they say that there's probably more, actually. It's just a mind-boggling number of people. 8,100. How many people died on the, on, the, on the day of the Twin Towers? 3,000, was it? 3,000-something? 8,100 during this period. They were shot. They weren't, they didn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't one event. It was one by one, taking them out and shooting them. <coughs> the extra-legal extra position of the church was henceforth legitimized by the decision of the kangaroo courts of the Bolsheviks. And on May 8th now, just one, one month later, the Moscow Tribunal during the trial against a group of clergy ruled that it establishes the illegality of the existence of an organization called the Orthodox Hierarchy. So you're, you're illegal. You don't exist legally. and You are now outlaw. You are an outlaw. You're Orthodox Christian. You're an outlaw. And we're going to hunt you down. You're a problem. Got, you, you are an enemy of the state. Thus, the Orthodox Church, headed by Patriarch Tikhon, and they called it Tikhon's Church, was outlawed. The rampant repressions and the massive closure of churches and monasteries already in the first years of the Soviet power pushed many Orthodox clergy and believers to become illegal. As one historian wrote, we can say that the catacomb church spontaneously began its existence from the first months of Soviet power when many believers were forced to lead a double secret life. Alrighty, so right already from the beginning, and certainly now by 22, what is going to come about over time, the, the catacomb church, the going underground, is already happening, already foreshadowed, it's already a reality.
Yeah, they miss him, Lord, and they love him.